Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read from verses 18 down through verse 26. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, that's an important word in this passage, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. The greatest commandment in the Bible is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But can you really love a God whom you discover to be angry? Can you trust a God who reveals his anger? The theologian Miroslav Volf could not. He considered the idea of an angry God to be obscene and, and called the idea completely unworthy of the loving Father Jesus revealed. He called the idea of an angry God an indecency and taught that it was a carryover from primitive times and from ancient pagan religion. Surely in our day, he thought, we have outgrown this barbaric idea of a wrathful God. And then war came to his native Croatia. The villages and cities where he grew up were devastated. 200,000 people were killed and brutalized. Three million people were displaced, losing not only their homes, but their neighborhoods and entire cities. When he thought about that, especially about his people who were, in his words, brutalized beyond imagination, he came to realize that he couldn't believe in a God who wouldn't be angered by such sin. Wolf wrote, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God's, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. Paul does not try to hide God's anger or rationalize it away. He brings it up here in the beginning of this letter because his readers will not understand the world they live in or their place in it, or the gospel of God without understanding that God is angry about some things. We can quite rightly affirm that God loves everyone and 
that God is angry without any contradiction. Now, we might ask, well, who's the object of God's anger? But that's not the question that Paul answers here. A better question would be, why is God angry? Or what is the object of God's anger? And the answer is verse 18, the godlessness and wickedness of people. Godlessness and wickedness. Those two are closely related. If there's a difference, godlessness has to do with the failure to treat God as God, as he deserves. And wickedness has to do with the failure to treat people as God has commanded. But both are related to a culpable inattention to God. This godlessness and wickedness results when people suppress the truth, verse 18, especially the truth about God. There are things about God that anyone can grasp. You don't have to be a Christian to know them. You can be a Muslim or a Hindu or a Taoist or nothing at all. Verse 19 says that what may be known about God is plain to them. And in this context, what may be known can be known from the natural world, just living in this world. Paul says that God has made it plain to people. He's woven it inside of them. And that means that everyone you know, Christian or atheist, Muslim, Hindu, Taoist, possesses an innate knowledge about God. They know, or at least they can know, that God exists and that he's powerful. That's verse 20. They don't have to do anything to know this. They will know this unless they choose not to. In which case, verse 20, they're without excuse. In verse 21, Paul claims that people in general know God, or at least knew God. For although they knew God, now, when did they know God? I'm not sure if he's talking about in the past or if he's talking about in childhood. Where did they know God? Perhaps in the back of their minds. The problem is not that people didn't know that God exists, but they didn't want to know. Verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. That's the legacy of Adam and the story of humanity. It's the story we've heard before, but the way Paul tells it is inverted. Instead of saying sin led to a damaged relationship with God, he turns it around and says a damaged relationship with God led to sin. Humans were created to know, to serve, to love and honor God. In other words, to treat God as God. We possess an innate knowledge that this is true, but have suppressed that truth and has led to all the problems that we deal with. And the problems don't just affect humanity, but all of creation. See, when God made humans, he linked our well-being and nature's well-being together. Which, when I was thinking about this, made me wonder if he made the cosmos so big because he didn't want our garbage spilling over into other neighborhoods. If we flourish, nature flourishes. If we fail, nature fails. That's not how people think about it. They think if humanity flourishes in terms of its economic growth, that nature's going to fail. But economic growth is not flourishing. 
If we flourish, nature flourishes. We fail, nature fails. And Paul's going to develop that idea in a very important passage in chapter 8. So the human refusal to treat God as God has messed everything up. Individuals, families, societies, even the ecosystem, everything. But instead of acknowledging that it's done wrong, humanity has resisted even more. Now, Paul doesn't describe that further resistance in terms of rebellious behavior, at least not yet, but in terms of futile thinking and darkened hearts. The damage humanity has suffered is so all-encompassing, not because it's out there somewhere, but because it's in here, in here, and perpetuated throughout generations. The broken relationship with God has damaged everything, including our ability to think. Now, it isn't that people aren't clever or insightful or sometimes brilliant. They can be. The powers of the human intellect are staggering. But we can't think ourselves to fulfillment, no matter how hard we try. Apart from God's spirit, our thinking, however logical or brilliant even, will take us in circles that orbit our own egos. We will never attain escape velocity that way, nor be lifted to the heights that the creator intended for us. That kind of thinking is futile because it never leaves us, leads us where we need to go. The Nobel Prize winning economist David Kahneman. You talk about a brilliant guy. This guy's brilliant in so many ways. He put it this way. We are normally blind about our blindness. We're generally overconfident in our opinions and our impressions and judgments. We exaggerate how knowable the world is. He says what psychology and behavioral economics have shown us is that people don't think very carefully. They're influenced by all sorts of superficial things in their decision-making. Yeah, we think that we reasoned our way to a decision. But the mind serves the heart, and the heart has been darkened. Or as St. Paul puts it, their thinking became futile. Now keep in mind that at this point, Paul is not describing a certain class of people. You can't say, well, he's talking about atheists here. He's not. Nor is he talking about people who belong to non-biblical religions or people who commit heinous crimes. He is drawing the widest circle possible, including all humanity, even us. He is describing the human experience. Though God is king over the world and over our lives, we've got into a place where we don't and can't recognize him as such. Our thoughts are futile. Our hearts are darkened. We think we're smart, verse 22, but that only goes to show how foolish we've become. That foolishness is seen in a series of stupid trades that humanity made, trading down each time. The first trade's found in verse 13. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Of course, Paul's talking about idolatry. And his Jewish readers, remember some of his readers in Rome are Jewish, were nodding their heads in agreement. They thought of idolatry as a Gentile sin. 
And we, reading this today, think of idolatry as a primitive sin. It was ignorant savages who created idols and worshipped them. But are we really so different? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. Has there ever been a time when that was more true than it is today? The ancients displayed their idols on mountain shrines and in dark grottos. We display them on 54-inch HD screens in our living rooms. The Kardashians and dozens of other half-dressed Asherah-like fertility goddesses. And the Molech gods like Cluny and DiCaprio and Timberlake along with scores of lesser known deities. Of course, real men like me, we don't bow down to those kind of idols. No, real men jump up and down and they shout like the prophets of Baal whenever the sports gods appear. Tom Brady and LeBron James and Miguel Cabrera and a host of other stadium deities. People all over the world in our families, our children, in our schools, are trying their hardest. They're trying religiously to conform to the image of these people. They dress, sometimes they undress like them. They talk like them, they act like them. Instead of worshiping and emulating the eternal God, they have traded him in. They've exchanged him for images, in Paul's words, made to look like mortal man. They traded down. And as human hearts were darkened, which is a natural result, all kinds of ugly things began to grow in there. Things that can't survive the light. The sinful desires of the heart, as Paul describes them in verse 24. But you see what's happening here? Humanity refused to trust God, ask God to treat him as God, and the result was that they were were confusing other things for God. When you're confused about God, you're going to be confused about yourself. When you lose God, you lose yourself, and eventually everything else. And that's what we see in the rest of this chapter. Like Adam, humans exchange truth for a lie. Just like Adam. A lie that promised fulfillment from created things, people, possessions, pleasures. And the lie sounded right because people and possessions do provide pleasures, but not fulfillment. See, it's a paradox. We must have God in order to be human. But we traded God in for people and possessions and pleasures. We traded down. With every trade down, humanity becomes less human. Because what makes us human is a connection to God. And as we become less human, our behavior is increasingly directed toward physical pleasures and emotional gratification. We become more like the lower animals. The sexual sins and sins of violence and greed and gluttony, those things don't make us less human. Well, maybe they do, but that's not where it starts. They're the result of being less human. Or put it this way, the further a person is from God, the further that person is from being his or her true self. This is the world we live in. 
It's not only a fallen world. It is a falling one. That's what's so hard for us to grasp. Now, God will break our fall. Paul will talk about that later in this letter. And it's good. But at this point, things look bleak. Because people didn't want God. They suffered a terrible judgment. God gave them what they did want. Now, two things need to be said. And the first is about God's wrath. Over the years as a pastor, I've seen this has caused many people real problems. The righteous God is angry about what humans do to each other and to his creation. His anger, though, is directed at, this is verse 18, godlessness and wickedness, not at people in general. Please keep that in mind. And his anger is measured. He is not now nor ever will be out of control. God is not like a parent who loses his or her temper and hits you. God never loses his temper. And another thing about God's anger is it's temporary. It is not like his love and faithfulness, which are eternal. His anger against godlessness and wickedness will vanish the moment godlessness and wickedness vanish. And they will because he has promised it. If you say, I don't believe in an angry God, I I must counter with, then you don't believe in a good one, the God of the Bible. The God that Richard Niebuhr scorned. A, A God without wrath who takes men and women without sin to a kingdom without judgment thanks to the ministrations of a Christ without a cross is a God without a basis in the Bible. The God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ can and will be reconciled to sinners, but he will never be reconciled to sin. It is destroying his creatures whom he loves and his creation, and he will destroy it. And that ought to give us pause if we refuse to be separated from our sins. And by the way, if that scares you, there's a difference from refusing to be separated from your sins and from your sins clinging to you when you don't want that. And all that brings me to something else that needs to be said in regard to this passage. And this is the reason for the PG-13 rating. It needs to be said, but it needs to be said carefully. Many of us have gay friends or children or grandchildren, and we struggle with knowing what to think about that. Some of us here may be gay, And may struggle with what to think about that, too. In this passage, Paul speaks candidly about same-sex relationships, and what he says has made people very uncomfortable. Some people would like to edit this passage right out of the Bible, while others use this passage as the basis for a very ungodlike homophobic crusade. We need to avoid 
both extremes and do our best to understand what Paul is really saying and why he's saying it. It seems clear to me, though I'll admit that not all Christians agree, it seems clear to me that Paul here and elsewhere places homosexual relationships outside the scope of God's will for us and inside the sphere of a deteriorating humanity. Now, Paul is not just reacting to what he's seen in Greek and Roman culture. He's comparing to what he's seen, what he's seen to the Bible. This passage is written with the creation account of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 firmly in his mind. It's in the background of everything he says. In keeping with the natural order, that is the essential created order outlined in Genesis, it is heterosexual and not homosexual relationships that God intends for his people. Now, it's very popular right now to argue that Paul was reacting to and renouncing a particular kind of same-sex relationship known as pederasty. In Greek and Roman culture, but particularly Greek culture, men often used teen boys of lesser status as well as slaves for sexual satisfaction, even though these men married and had families. According to some people today, it was these expressions of love and of power and of exploitation, and only these, that Paul's condemning here. And he certainly is condemning those. Can you imagine being a Christian slave or a teen in the Roman church and reading this, having it read to you? People who had been forced to submit to such abuse, their ears would have perked up. They would have listened with keen interest, in some cases with great, great relief. But Paul, that's true, but Paul clearly has more in mind here than pedestry. The creation account of male and female is the backdrop to what he's saying And significantly, the first same-sex relationship that he rejects is not a pederasty relationship at all, but a relationship among women, among whom such things were not even known. He rejects same-sex relationships as unnatural, and that is, he says that they are outside of God's creative intent for his people. Now, that being said, what are we to do with this? Especially as it regards people we love who are gay. Or especially if we feel same-sex attraction ourselves. Well, let me start with what we should not do. We should not make same-sex, or for that matter, opposite sex, outside of God's will relationships, some special category of sin. Paul doesn't. Inappropriate same-sex relationships are listed here alongside more than a dozen other behaviors. It's not same-sex relationships, but the broken relationship with God that's caused all this mess and left humans subject to judgment. That's important to grasp. Otherwise, we'll think of those people as the problem and not include ourselves. 
That brings me to the point that scholar Ernst Kesselman made about this text. He said that Paul understands sexual sins to be the result of God's wrath, not the reason for it. God is not a homophobe. Same-sex relationships are not the ultimate class of sinful behavior, and Paul doesn't treat them as such. Instead, they are another example of how our lives get off track because of humanity's rebellion against God. So what do you do with friends and family who are gay? Do your best to understand the big picture of what's happened between God and humanity. And when it's appropriate, talk honestly and compassionately about your conclusions with the people you love. Don't treat someone who's gay as if God hates him because God doesn't hate him. He loves him just like he loves you. There must be, and this I, I and the leadership absolutely insist on, no contempt or unkindness toward gay people at Lockwood Church ever. What if you experience same-sex attraction yourself? Well, first, don't panic. Second, don't take what other people say, including me, as gospel truth. You need to do your best to grasp the big picture of what happened between God and humanity. Study the scriptures for yourself and think through them carefully. Not like Kahneman says most of us do. If you do that with a desire to please God, you'll surely be all right. I've not faced this myself, but plenty of other people have. I have two Christ-following friends who have struggled and perhaps still do with same-sex desires. In their case, they're both now married and have children, and one of them's in full-time ministry. But I know it doesn't always work out like that. We're all different, but God is the same, and he is good. Using the term big picture reminded me of a book by that name that I read, a book I valued a lot by an English clergyman named Vaughn Roberts. He... Roberts is a scholar, and he's also the pastor of a parish church in Cambridge. And he has been open about his own struggles with same-sex attraction. Roberts has a vibrant and faithful ministry and a loving church that prays for him. How huge that is. And there are other people like him, many others, who've gone through the same thing. Henry Nowen, for example, is probably one of the better-known examples If this is a struggle for you, you need to know that God loves you and has plans for you. I'll say one last thing. Many caring people with gay friends and family refuse to live in the tension between the teaching of the Bible and the love of their family. They feel like they can't take it. They feel like they must either distance themselves from the one or from the other. So if that's where you are right now, and I know some of you are, if that's where you are right now, I urge you to do neither. Live in the tension 
without letting go of your convictions or your compassion of the Bible or your loved one. It's in that tension that you will find yourself at the very intersection of God's love and human need. And that intersection is shaped appropriately like a cross. God, you made us for better things than we have yet experienced. But let your will be fulfilled in your people. Shape us into people like Jesus, full of joy and love and power, for his name's sake. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing. And while we're standing with the men who are going to help us with the communion, come forward. And then we're going to share in communion. Oh, yeah, we'll share in communion. Let's just sing the first verse of this song.